Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to a special edition of Words Matter, The Contenders. Welcome to The Contenders. I'm Joe Lockhart. Given the intense interest in the Democratic nomination process, we thought it'd be interesting to talk to those men and women who've taken the ultimate political leap of faith and run for president of the United States. Our guest today is an author, a medical doctor, and from 1991 to 2003, the 79th governor of Vermont. In 2004, he ran for the Democratic nomination for president. While he didn't win the nomination, he started a movement and later served as the chairman of the Democratic National Committee from 2005 to 2009. His implementation of the 50-state strategy as head of the DNC is credited with the Democratic victories in 2006 and 2008 elections, with Democrats taking control of the House, the Senate, and the White House. Howard Dean, welcome to The Contenders. Great to be here, Joe. Thanks for having me. Your entry to politics is unlike a lot of people who, in grade school, told their teacher, I'm going to be president of the United States one day. Talk a little bit about how you got into politics in general. Well, my very first political office was student council, and I was nominated by a guy. I was shocked. I was just shocked that anybody would even think about that. And I didn't win, but two years later I did, or a year later, whatever. So that was my first political intro. Then I went to college and basically gave up on politics. It was uh, Johnson, Nixon, you know, two presidents, one of each party, lying about the war, and 55,000 Americans were killed for no good reason. Um, And not to mention millions of Southeast Asians. And so I'd given up on politics. And uh, I went out west and skied and washed dishes for a while, and then I worked on Wall Street for a while, and then I went back to school and became a doctor. And I never got back into politics until Jimmy Carter ran for president. I always liked him. I was in medical school when he first ran, so I couldn't obviously do any work. But I did go to work for him as a volunteer in Vermont, and that's what got me started in politics. I also was doing a citizens' action group to preserve a whole strip of waterfront along the Burlington waterfront on Lake Champlain and not let it be developed into condos. I wanted it to be open to the public, and it was. And now there's a bike path. You can ride all the way up to Montreal if you want to. <laughs> so that got me uh, into an organizational mode, and that's really where I started my career. You were elected to the state legislature. You were lieutenant governor, but those were part-time jobs. Your yep. full-time job was a physician. You worked in a doctor's office. You saw patients, and you did public service on the side as a part-time job. Well, I did politics on the side. Yep. I was the chairman of the county committee. It wasn't very big by New York standards, but it was the third large. I mean, it was the largest county in the state by a factor of three. So you and you could not win an office in the state of Vermont if you're a Democrat without winning that county. So it put me in a place where a lot of people came to see me a lot often. So, Lieutenant Governor, uh, talk about the day you realized you were going to be governor. Right. I'm doing a physical in my office, August fourteenth, nineteen ninety-one, in my. Third term, I did think about running for governor because the governor had left, 
And uh, I decided not to, partly because there were two other people who would have been a primary, and partly because you can't shut your medical practice down for five months while you go campaigning and expect to have a medical practice when you get back. And I had two small children that I had to do something about supporting. So I decided to run for re-election, which I knew was not going to be difficult. And I won. And then on August 14, 1991, eight months later, I got a call from the governor's office while I was practicing a patient. And uh, this quavering voice on the other end of the phone said, I regret to inform you that Governor Snelling has died and you are the governor. And that was the end of my medical practice right then and there. I finished seeing that patient because I knew they were never going to get another appointment and then went to Montpelier and took the oath of office. So that's when you became a full-time politician right. and a physician emeritus, I guess. Yes, yeah. that's correct. That's a good way to put it. So Vermont is the second small state in the country, yep. but it does seem to produce a lot of successful national political figures. Give me an idea of when you first thought, where it entered into your head that, you know what, maybe I should be president of the United States. Well, I, in uh, 2000, when Bill Clinton was leaving office and Al Gore was running, I went actually down at the suggestion of somebody who didn't mean me any help to talk to Al Gore about the fact that I was going to run against him. And uh, that lasted about three hours. They leaked the story. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Every press organ in the state wanted to know about it. And my approval rating dropped 20 points in 24 hours, and that was the end of that bid. Uh, then we did some more stuff. We, we uh, changed the funding in the schools, which was very controversial, so that the poor towns would be supported by the rich towns, and that was very controversial. And then, of course, we did the first same-sex marriage equality bill in the country, and that was really controversial. And after that, I won by 128 votes, my sixth re-election. Now, I beat everybody by a good margin. There was a third-party person in the race, a progressive, who took 10%. But in Vermont, you have to win 50% plus one or the legislature elects the governor. And we lost control of the legislature, of course, because of civil unions. So <laughs> I was calling a lot of uh, moderate Republicans at the <laughs> towards the end of that election and then I, I knew I was done, and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to run for president. And the irony of it all is I ran for president on the idea that everybody in this country ought to have health care and that we ought to balance the budget. Those were my two key items, which did not engender great excitement as I trudged around Iowa all winter for two years. Yeah, well, even a successful governor who, who did things like civil union, which – Proved right. prescient at the time, universal health care, things that now we talk about in terms of things that are doable and possible, and then they were very controversial. But talk a little bit about why you thought being governor of such a small state prepared you for an impossible job being president. Well, I had been the chairman of the National Governors. I was chairman of the Democratic Governors Association. I was recruiting chair for about five years. So I had been around the country. I'd recruited Janet Napolitano and a lot of people who did very well. So I, it wasn't like I knew nothing about national politics. Bill and Hillary Clinton helped me enormously. I mean, we did some really big-time stuff in Vermont. We had, every child had health insurance by 1992 in my state, and there were no pre-existing conditions were not permitted in my state in 1992. I mean, we did a lot of Obamacare 25 years before Obama did it, 20 years. And... We did it because Bill Clinton gave me waivers, and Bill Clinton gave me waivers because I supported them on the night the draft letter came out. 
uh, next door uh, into the first primary state. So the Clintons were incredibly helpful to me from a policy point of view. They gave me waivers to fund health care at home, uh, Medic- be able to use Medicaid at home. So we cut back the number of nursing homes. And I mean, they did. I had a very progressive record. We saved hundreds of thousands of acres that would be permanently conserved. And the Clintons were enormously helpful when the federal government was getting in the way. So I knew a fair amount about national politics. And I just figured I wasn't any different than any of the people I met. <laughs> so why shouldn't I run? You, you mentioned the Clintons. You saw what those campaigns did to their lives, turned them upside down. Talk about making the decision. Who did you talk to? What did your family think? Who did you turn to to say, is this a good idea? Or is this that you had this idea and you were going to do it? Uh, I had this idea and I was going to do it. That's, <laughs> I mean, I it, it comes internally. And the, the way it, it always seems like I'm jumping into it without thinking about it, but that's not really true. I, I mull it over subconsciously for a long time. And all of a sudden the decision pops out and it looks like I just thought of it that day, but it's not true. But it was just something I was going to do. I knew I had to do it, and I was going to do it, and that was that. And the family fully behind you? Uh, not particularly. Judy, my wife, has never liked politics, and we had a deal. We have two-year terms in Vermont, which I'm actually a very big fan of because I think I'm actually a fan of term limits too because I think there's a lot of things wrong with the political system when politicians decide that it's more important that they get reelected than it is for what they do for the country. And I think – the two-year term works really well for me because if you do your job, you get reelected. The deal was Judy, each term would appear twice, once on election night and once at the inauguration. That was it. No campaigning, no nothing. She's a physician. She's a very good physician. She's not very interested in politics. Luckily, she is interested in me, so she was able to tell me when I was full of it, which was from time to time obvious. <laughs> so – one of the very first challenges of mounting a presidential campaign is putting a structure together. Right. How do you go from the three or four people you trust the most who know about your local politics or your guy in Washington to finding people and bringing – mixing the new That was very, very hard. I imagine it's hard for everybody except for those who have been in politics in Washington for a long time. I was definitely not in politics. I did have – some Washington consultants for my gubernatorial races and who did ads and stuff like that. So I relied on them. And and I did have my own crew from uh, Vermont. And we ran the campaign out of Vermont, which was really important. People thought that was crazy. But in fact, it was a great place to run campaign out of. A lot of it, most of the staff, we had no money to start with until I came out against the Iraq war, which I'll tell you the story about later. But what we did have was power a powerful message so we were stocked up by 23-year-olds who basically invented the whole thing. I mean, Joe Rosebars was 23 years old. He came to work for our campaign. He ended up being the net master. Nick O'Malley was the you know, webmaster. Nick now runs the Shorenstein right. Center. I mean, all these incredibly talented people came to my campaign when they were young. And they, you know, Joe and 12 other guys from the campaign built Blue State Digital. We were really the first campaign for this generation, this millennial generation. And I was very disorganized and not very disciplined as a candidate, but it occurred to them for the first time that politics actually did matter. This is in a generation that doesn't like institutions and doesn't like the sort of rough stuff in politics and certainly the lack of principle in politics. But they all came into my campaign and then they made the switch to Obama, who was a much better organized and better disciplined candidate, and they put him over the top. It's the only election in my lifetime where more people under 35 voted than over 65. It was extraordinary. One of the things I, I want to get into, but not quite yet, is the 
incredible influence you had in changing the way people run their campaigns. Did you set out to run the campaign differently or did your personal circumstances force on you a model because you couldn't compete with, you know, with the old-fashioned model? Neither one. I had no idea what I was doing, uh, although that never stopped me from before for anything. The kids designed it. They figured it out. Uh, they're, they're 23. They knew how to do crowdfunding and all these things. I had no idea what I was doing. One of my favorite stories is, as you know, these you, you go back to the office every couple of weeks and thank everybody, and then you're out in the road for another couple of weeks and so forth. So I'm in the office in Burlington and thank the troops and rah, rah, rah. And uh, this is after we'd started to get attention because I'd come out against the Iraq war. And uh, one of the kids, 20-something-year-old kid, comes down and says, Governor, I'd like you to sit in front of this computer and eat a ham sandwich for lunch. I said, What? <laughs> And, of course, there, in those days, there were webcams, but there wasn't any camera in right. your computer or anything. So this was all Greek to me. I had no idea what was going on. So I'm sitting – I have a ham sandwich in front of my web – you know, my computer, which is live-streamed, another term I'd never heard before. And it's, they did it because Cheney was having a $500,000 fundraiser in South Carolina at $25,000 a couple – and we outraised them six hundred to five hundred thousand dollars. Web streaming, having a ham sandwich at lunch. I mean, it was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> that wasn't my idea. I can assure you of that. Now, Trippy probably had a hand in that because it was the kind of thing he would think of. But I couldn't believe it. It has become so much part of the campaign ethos now. For right. Those sorts of things. It's probably hard for a lot of listeners to know just how crazy it seemed in the moment, it particularly, particularly really. for someone who was doing it because you trusted the person, but you had no idea why you were doing it. Right, right. I had no idea why I was doing it. I just did what I was told. <laughs> this goes into the category of most Democrats now speak easily about what a mistake the Iraq war was. Uh, when you came out against it, you didn't exactly have a lot of company with you. A lot no, of people everybody, you. every major candidate who was running against me either had voted for it or was for it. Wes Clark, who hadn't voted because he hadn't served in, in an elected office. Uh, and they'd also voted for Bush's tax cuts. I didn't realize till after the campaign was over that what I was really doing was running against the Democratic Party. And that's where we got Paul. The, I repeated Paul Wellstone's thing about, uh, you know, I'm, I think I'll represent the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. It's interesting. I'm kind of where Hillary is on defense. On the, I'm not a hawk by Republican standards, but by Democratic standards, I believe the Russians don't understand anything other than strength and the kinds of things she believes. But I came out against the Iraq war because I read um, everything that I can get my hands on. And I read The Guardian and The Independent, and they were publishing stuff from MI6 that said that, that there was no mass destruction weapons and there were no atomic weapons. Cheney was, knew there was no atomic weapons. He was trying to hint that there was, but he knew he couldn't say it. But they were lying through their teeth about weapons of mass destructions. And I also knew that the closest intelligence relationship in the world is not Israel-America. It is the UK and America. And that whatever the UK intelligence agencies knew, we knew. And I knew they were lying. And I'd grown up during the Vietnam War when two back-to-back -back presidents lied through their teeth and sent a half a million kids to Vietnam, 10% of which didn't come back. And you never ask somebody to sacrifice their children unless you're going to tell the truth. And if these people were not telling the truth, and that's why I came out against the war in Iraq. 
Tell me what it felt like as this started to gain some strength. You took a principal position on Iraq. You were talking about the Democratic wing and the Democratic right. Party. And people were responding to it. And a lot of politicians go around and no one ever really walks up to someone running and saying, says, I hate you. You have no chance of winning. Have a good day. People say nice things. But did you know something was happening? Could you feel a change in the way people were oh, yeah. looking at you? I mean, we went on this thing called the Sleepless Summer Tour, which definitely was sleepless. And we hired this. We didn't have any money, so we hired this rickety old 770, 747, whatever the hell it was, 37, and flapped, practically flapped our wings across yeah. the country. Ended up in Seattle with 15,000 people. Every time I, we crossed the country, I made them stop in places like Idaho, and because I knew there were Democrats in Idaho, and I knew that we needed to talk to This is where the 50-state strategy came from my experience during the campaign. Every place has Democrats. We complained about South Carolina and Alabama. Well, South Carolina and Alabama have about 40% Democrats. That's 40% of the population. You can't not talk to those people. And furthermore, we can't let Rush Limbaugh be the messenger of the Democratic Party. You got to go down there and tell them who you are and what you believe in. And that's why I think we ought to get rid of the Electoral College. So we, so Donald Trump goes to California and Hillary Clinton goes to Texas. Right. You have to do those things or the country's going to fall apart. <laughs> so we stopped in a bunch of places like this. We had big crowds in places like Boise just at the airport. And then when we went to Seattle, it was just Bedlam and Portland was another big one. And then we came back to New York and, uh, and filled Bryant Park and raised a million dollars. And I, I was told long after that by a friend of mine who's sort of an insider in D.C. and has been for a long time, and was a staffer at that time. And she said that at the end of the summer tour, everybody in Washington was watching the televisions to see if the million-dollar thing would get hit when we went to Bryant Park. I mean, they were just astonished at what the hell was going on. I was so tired. I was too tired to be astonished. But it was astonishing. Yeah. I mean, it, when we outraised John Kerry in the second quarter, that's when I began to lead the polls. And that was all because of the invisible primary. and It was all inside the Beltway stuff, but it matters at that stage of the campaign. Yeah. The time that I took notice, I mean, I was paying attention like anyone in Washington not involved in any campaigns. Right. But I remember taking a cab from point A to point B, and I had a chatty driver, and he had the radio on, and there was something about politics, and he started talking. And he was... Um, a recent immigrant to the country had become an American citizen, and some soundbite came on with you were talking to somebody someplace, and he goes, "Oh, Howard Dean, I just wrote my fifth check to him this morning." Wow! And I just—I mean, I literally said, "What do you mean you wrote the fifth? <laughs> and I said, "Well, how much have you given him?" And I, you know, normally you talk to donors, and it's right. a thousand. He goes, "Well, it was twenty bucks this morning, but last week when I saw something I liked, I gave him fifty and." I, I just remember thinking, something has changed that I missed, right? and I better figure this out, just as someone who's interested as an observer to politics, and that – you started that. Well, I, I mean, my campaign started that. This is the – look, my campaign, looking back on it, the important thing about my campaign is it energized an entire new generation by l teaching them that they did have the power, in fact, to change things, and they could, and it didn't work in the end. But it made a – not only did it made a big impact, they all went to work for Barack Obama four years later, which Obama very nicely gave me credit for the night he, in Grand Park when he won. But I don't really take credit for that. I was the vessel. 
Uh, and I did have an inspirational vessel, and I let them do anything they wanted because I, tr- I love this generation. I trust them. I, I have no patience with old people who condemn millennials and whine all the time. of all oh, these young people, blah, yeah, every generation does that. It's time for us to get the hell out of the way and coach them. But uh, they were incredible. They finally decided they had to use their power to change things because Bush was screwing everything up. So you you win the invisible primary, and back then we still even used that phrase, right. which is you went from someone who was running ninth in the polls to this virtual money machine who can raise more money than anyone who's been in the Senate forever or the insiders or the people that have all the fancy endorsements and big campaign staff. What changed? How did the campaign for you change all of a sudden where everybody knew your name? Lots of things happen. The press really does, um, it's really more sports polling than it is re- serious reporting. And they still do it. I mean, the press hasn't changed that much. Cable television, I thought, was going to go out of business. And if it hadn't been for Trump, they would have because he's the perfect reality show person to keep them busy. But the press tends to focus on gotcha, scandals, who's up, who's down. So they love it when you're coming up and upsetting the apple cart. It's a really American story. You know, a person comes out of nowhere and beats the establishment. But when you get to be the first person, then you are the establishment and they come after you. So there was that. Then the other guys, this is a tough business. They used to meet, with the exception of Edwards' people, five of them used to meet every morning in Iowa. What's the line on Dean today? How we, how can we take him down? And I don't feel angry about that because this is the toughest job in the world. And if you can't put up with that, what are you going to... I used to say this all the time. What are you going to say when Vladimir Putin wants Alaska back? Unfortunately, we have a guy in the office now who'll say, oh, yes, sir. Yeah. And what else would you like? <laughs> let me throw, that, let me throw was, in Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. I'll throw in Hawaii for a good measure. I was unprepared. I was not prepared for a national race. I had no idea how hard it was. I gained 25 pounds because I lived on peanut M&Ms for about six months. I'd go into the airplane. I could never got any sleep. And when I don't sleep, I make up for it by shoveling bad things into my face. I remember in Iowa, I felt it slipping away three weeks before. And I was trying to make the turn from a candidate who was an insurgent and beloved by a core group of kids to somebody who could, people could see as presidential. Because I knew the closer we got to Iowa, the vote the more Iowans were going to make sure that they had somebody who could run against Bush and, and, and be presidential. And I was unable to make the turn for too many reasons. One of them was that when I started talking about sort of more boring, mundane policy, the audience didn't get the rise, and, and that's somewhat addictive. Another was we were very badly organized. We did not, I was, I'm not a well-organized person, and this campaign started from nothing in, over a chiropractor's office in Montpelier, Vermont, with one employee. And now we were leading the pack for president of the United States on the Democratic side. We were just not ready. We hadn't called the ones in Iowa for three or four months. And Mike Hooley, who's one of the great organizers ever, came out and worked for Kerry and organized the hell out of Iowa. And they did a good job. Yeah, that, one of the ironies is I worked for Walter Mondo and Joe Trippi was his Iowa guy and yeah. knew everybody in the state. But he had his hands full there. Talk about the difficulty of going from an insurgent candidacy to trying to look presidential. Why didn't that work? Would you do something differently, you know, with hindsight and sure. sleep? Um, well, yes, I get a little more sleep. We got you got to be a little more buttoned down. The energy of the young people in the campaign was remarkable, but they had never experienced national politics before. I'd experienced national politics in the back room, but certainly never as a candidate. I think the thing that I would do that would be different 
is uh, is get some more sleep and get prepped better. I had a very good prep team, very, very good, both on the domestic side and the foreign policy side. So it wasn't like we didn't know what we were talking about. But there's a certain, the experience of being a national figure allows you to synthesize issues in a way that I can do now because I've done stuff all over the world, but I didn't have a lot of foreign experience, for example, at that time. And I'd been to a bunch of countries. It's not the same thing as flying over to Israel and showing the flag. It's not the same thing as sitting down with people in the room and figuring out how this all fits together and who your friends are and who you people you have to get along with even though you don't like them and all those kinds of things. So there was just an enormous amount that I didn't know about national politics. I also probably was not suited for what people think of as a president, at least what the stereotype was. One of my idols is Harry Truman. Harry Truman and I are a lot alike in some ways. We're very plain-spoken people. We're not, uh, we're not impressed by big shots. And we speak our mind. I'm not sure either one of us ever would have been elected to the positions we were elected to if somebody hadn't died. In my case, I'm not sure I ever would have been elected governor of the state of Vermont, although I was there for six terms. Once you're in office, people love the frankness and they love speaking your mind, but they don't like it so much when you're trying to get into office. And Harry Truman, who was, in my opinion, one of our great presidents, was very similar in that way. So it's, you know, running is different than being president. That's an interesting point. Why is it that the candid, plain-spokenness is not a positive attribute for a candidate? It can be, but too much of it, you make people mad. And people tend to remember when they're mad more than they remember what they liked about you. And I said some things that I've forgotten what they were now, but that weren't very smart, made some gaffes and so forth and so on. Although my favorite saying was, which is a Washington saying, is uh, people who from Washington think that a gaffe is when somebody tells the truth and they shouldn't have. So that was fairly popular. I just think there was this, because we as a campaign were disorganized and I was disorganized, I think there was a question that arose, and of course with lots of fanning of the flames of both the press corps and the other candidates, this guy's not ready for prime time to be president. Yeah, one, one of my favorite descriptions in primary campaigns came from Bob Beckel, who ran the Mondale campaign in right. 1984. And everybody remembers Gary Hart, but in 1983, we were scared to death of John Glenn. You know, this was right. a hero. The movie was coming out. And Beckel was very sanguine about it. He was quoted one day as saying, John Glenn's going to learn that presidential politics is like flying at 40,000 feet. It's a little hard to breathe up there. It's a little hard to think, yeah. you know, on your feet. And he was right because yep. Glenn, who's one of the most admirable guys ever, I loved spending time with him and his wife, Annie. But when the light went on and the pressure was on, that's a skill he didn't have. That's right. I just wonder – was there a moment where you felt like you were in over your head or things were moving too quickly? Or- I never felt like I was in over my head because I didn't think anybody else was any smarter than I was. Uh, and I thought they'd compromise themselves on on Iraq and the, some of the other Bush stuff that was going on. So I never felt like I didn't be on, shouldn't be on the same stage as they. But there were a lot of traps, as you know, in politics. When people ask you things, sometimes it's better if you don't directly respond and say exactly what you think. And those are the kind of traps I'd fall into. I get asked about the debates all the time. And the debates we had, by the time we started having debates, I was the front runner. I'd never been in a presidential debate in my life. I'd never even had a debate seriously, anybody for governor until the last couple of terms. So <laughs> it's pretty 
interesting when you get dropped into a debate and you're the pincushion for three senators and a congressman. How do you prepare for those? Oh, we had murder boards. Yeah. It was fun. I still remember still remember in fury. I can't remember the guy's name, but I remember him well, the guy who played Gephardt, who just skewered me and was really good and made me furious. And the idea in those things was to make you mad as hell so because you cannot lose your temper. And so they try to provoke you to lose your temper. The guys yeah. I had that did that kind of stuff were great. They were from Washington. They knew what they were doing. They had been there a long time. These were really experienced people because, of course, Trippy McMahon and Squire knew people from all over the country and could bring those kinds yeah. of people in. We had people like Sandy Berger on the defense team. I mean, it was, I mean, it was great. I mean, it was really good. I had good people around me. Well, Sandy will remember because he was there when George Mitchell was playing Bob Dole for Clinton in 96. Where And Mitchell was tearing him apart. And at one point, Clinton looked over and goes, God damn it, he's got notes over there. This isn't fair. And everybody in the room yeah. just starts laughing like, sir, this isn't a real debate. Like, Yeah, uh, but, you know, we all have competitive juices. Yeah. So <laughs> before I move on, I just want to pick up on one thing you said, which is you tried to make a turn to seem more presidential. Right. Looking back on it, should you have just – kept going as the insurgent? No, I couldn't. I was trapped. I, I should have done it earlier, but I never should have kept going the way I was because the message just was, look at all these Washington people. We can do better than this and we should get out of Iraq. And by that time, all the other people had denied that they'd ever voted for Iraq and all that kind of stuff. The problem was this, and it's a problem Trump has actually. My crowd adored me. And when I started to talk about more mundane things like how you actually improved education in schools, they would clap. But it wasn't until I – and when I, I knew they wanted – It wasn't to revolutionary. No, and let's take to the streets. Right. And, and yeah. that's what they wanted. Yeah. And I knew that I shouldn't do it and it's addictive. And you get in there and you do, the, do it and then it's great but it's the same old stuff on television which plays right into the dean as an angry man yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, – and I could feel it slipping away. The other thing that was bad – was we had thousands of kids in Iowa working, and so uh, and they would wear orange hats, which was great. And I would go and give a speech, and 800 people would fill the room. Many of them had orange hats on. And I'd go, then I'd go to a small event, and I'd go somewhere else and do a speech, and the room would be full. And I began to realize it was the same kids. They just moved down the... And I thought, geez, this is like, at the time, the Grateful Dead. Now, for this generation, would be like fish, yeah. where you had people following them around every concert they went to. Well, that's fine in, in rock and roll, and they're all paying. But in politics, that's not so good. you got to yeah. broaden your base. I was hoping there'd be a fish reference, so now we've let's check that box. <laughs> uh, so talk a little bit about the process. New Hampshire, I'm sure you're very familiar with, mm -hmm. uh, a neighbor. Iowa, very different. Do particularly Democrats have it right in allowing Iowa and New Hampshire no, to have that much? they don't. I tried to change that when I became chairman of the Democratic Party, and we couldn't. I mean, we could have, but it was the blood all over the floor. It wouldn't have been worth it. So what we did was move up South Carolina and Nevada. So there's really now four early primaries because South Carolina has a very substantial African-American population, which is a core part of the Democratic Party base. And Nevada has the, the second highest percentage of Asian Americans in any state in the country and a very big Latino population. Our party now, today, is driven by people under 35, women, and people of color. That's our core base. So to have an early primary in Nevada or 
Iowa is really not doesn't make that much sense. But the tradition of it, and there's a lot of politics involved. And at the end of the day, as most people have found, it's not worth it. Talk a little bit about your relationship with the press, how you interacted with them, and their influence on the process. Well, they have a big influence in the process. In Vermont, the press corps disciplines itself. Everybody knows everybody. They ask tough questions, but they're usually not discourteous. And when somebody's ridiculous and comes from usually out of state and does all this baiting stuff that goes on so frequently, the other reporters turn on them. They don't usually do it right in front of you at the press conference, but they'll do it privately or they'll not sit next to them and call them an outlier because everybody knows everybody. So it's not like they don't write unflattering stories that make you mad as a governor or whatever, but they don't go to ridiculous lengths and make suppositions and charges and innuendos that just aren't true. And if they do that, they tell you about it first because there is some things that should be exposed in Vermont, just like every place else. I was totally unused to the press corps and shocked by the press corps. Even the good papers in in the national, they wrote because they wanted to get their, their name on the front page and their byline. They wrote about stuff that wasn't true, including places, really good places like the New York Times. They put stuff in that I can give you a couple of examples. In Iowa, I was leading, although I could feel the slipping, but I was leading And it was Martin Luther King's celebration. So I went to memorial service for Martin Luther King. And, of course, 75 cameras followed me because that was the leading candidate. And the press was making so much noise and pushing people around uh, that it was disrespectful. And Martin Luther King was a pretty important figure who died tragically. And they were disrupting the service. So I thought I should leave because otherwise the service is going to be disrupted. So I left. But, of course, that wasn't in the schedule. So there was a mass exodus. They were pushed people down. They knocked uh, the congressman on his butt. They pushed over an old lady, and they just hightailed it out after me. And I finally turned to one of them. I said, you guys got to behave yourself and stop this nonsense. You just knocked over the congressman. And uh, next day, Dean causes riot at uh, – I mean, you know, you just kind of go – Really? I mean, is this the best you can do? Yeah. You've said a couple times that you could feel it slipping, which means you're a good politician because you saw something. What did you see? I saw the disorganization in the campaign and some infighting that was going on in Burlington, which was very bad, which I knew was going to happen. I intended to make a change in my campaign manager in September, and I couldn't because I was leading. That'd be three weeks of Dean campaign in disarray if I do that. And that turned out to be a mistake. And then there's a lot of work that didn't get done, and nobody wanted to do it, like go out to Iowa and straighten the place out. And I was stale. I was, as I talked about before, I was stuck in this Democratic wing of the Democratic Party stuff, and partly because I, I was unable to to start talking seriously about policy because the press didn't want to write about that. The kids didn't want to hear about that. And you couldn't get the paper if you talked about policy. You could only do it if you were a revolutionary. And so that's why I really felt like it was slipping away. So let's talk about the night of the Iowa caucuses. Did you the, think the, that- uh, the I have a scream speech? Oh, I, I, I was going to get to that. <laughs> but since, no, let me let – me, 
did you sitting getting ready to go out on that stage think, okay, this is over because expectations no. are so important? No, um, Trippy, you- Trippy was actually great about that. He said, "Look, go out there or discouraged. They expected you to come in first and just go out and give them hell." So I did. Were you surprised by the reaction to? We're going to go on on the screen because, of course, you were surprised. I didn't think anything of it, yeah. and neither did any of the reporters in the room. I mean, it wasn't until the cable guys got their hands on it that, and then it went all, all over the place. So I didn't even think about it until I got to New Hampshire because we got to New Hampshire at 4 a.m. and flew in and had a big rally. I had already lost Iowa. I mean, Hillary Clinton came, was supposed to come in first in Iowa in 2008, and she came in third. Well. You know, she had a lot more resources than I did, so she hung out until June. But it was a multiple-person race. People liked Edwards. People wanted somebody to beat Bush, and they thought Kerry might fit the bill. And he did a fantastic campaign, did a great job organizing, coming from behind. I don't think it cost us the election. I think it made it harder for me to come back. I almost came back in New Hampshire. We thought we could beat Kerry in New Hampshire. And then at the last few days, that fell apart we, we did come in second. We didn't lose by a lot. What the cable companies did was dishonest, but that's how they make their living. But I don't really think that cost me. What cost me was all the other things, the disorganization, the, the not being able to hone the message better, just my lack of experience as a national candidate. And there's a debate in the Democratic Party right now between the power of passion and insurgency, right. and Bernie Sanders' revolution, and the power of organization and strength, and Joe Biden can put this together, or Elizabeth Warren can put that together. When you look back on it, do you wish you had taken more time to build a broader, stronger foundation? Or is it just one of these things where you were flying by the seat of your pants and you were where you were? I would have loved to have done that. We would have been have to have been extraordinarily lucky to be, to be able to do it. We didn't have anybody that ever had ever done it before. We did have guys that had worked in other campaigns, but never for a front runner, well, for insurgents. They, some of them run, worked in Jerry Brown's campaign. When you start, this is one of the big problems, when you start from nothing in the second smallest state in the country and you catch fire, unless you have an enormous amount of experience, you just are sort of riding the wave. I mean, it's like riding a 100-foot wave out in Portugal. <laughs> You don't really have time to think about building the organization. You're just trying to stay alive and stay ahead of the next bump in the wave so you don't get killed. Yeah, I remember when Gary Hart unexpectedly won New Hampshire in, in 1984. Yeah. I, I remember reading a story like the next day. And I was working for Mondale, so I was yeah. like fighting for my job and my life. And there was an interview with some guy in Florida, and he was their state director. And the interviewer said, well, how big a staff do you have? And he said, you're looking at it. And he was in his law office. They had no organization, nothing. Right. And they had 10 days until, or two weeks to the primary. Right. I think your campaign, that campaign illustrates that there's two driving forces. One is the grassroots progressive strength, particularly young people, and then the traditional organizational powers within the party. Well, that was the genius of Obama, was he took all that strength from my campaign, this incredible passion, and he imposed discipline on it. He is a disciplined person. Pluff, in my view, did the most extraordinary job ever. No, I was the referee in that campaign. Of course, both sides thought I was in the bag for the other one. but, But I was the referee in that campaign, and I, of course, expected Hillary to win. And... After Iowa, I just went, oh, my God, not only this guy can win the whole thing, but he can be the president of the United States. You have to, in order to win Iowa, you have to be unbelievably well-organized. I don't think anybody's ever won Iowa just by passion. 
I really don't. Maybe on the Republican side, they might have with some of the right-wing, you know, evangelical types. But you really do have to be organized. I mean, that caucus, you have to be organized. And you have to get your people to the polls, and it's time certain. It's not very democratic because people who are disabled or have kids at home or have to work two jobs can't vote. But organization is absolutely critical. And that was the biggest difference between what Obama's campaign did and what we did. We were having fun. Uh, it was the inter introduction to politics for thousands and thousands of kids. I still see people all over the country. Hey, I worked for you yeah. in New Hampshire. Yeah. But there was not the discipline that you have to have to win the presidency. So very soon after Wisconsin, you come in third, you decide to drop out. Talk about how you made that decision. I decided a couple of days earlier. Roy Neal, who was my campaign manager at the time, called me up and said, we got $400,000 left. You wanted to put it on the air in Wisconsin? I said, no, because I didn't want to stiff everybody for all the bills, which is the usual MO. I knew I wasn't going to win. The most interesting thing about Wisconsin, I was furious. I felt like I had been screwed by all the other candidates, all this. Politics is a dirty business, but although it, was not, it wasn't as dirty then yeah. as it is now. I mean, But Al Gore, who had endorsed us, called me up in the middle of the night, about three days to go, and I was furious. I knew I was going to come in third again. And I was ranting and raving, saying, why am I a Democrat? Look what these people did to me. Tell me what I'd owe the Democratic Party. And he very patiently listened to me for about 20 minutes of ranting and raving. And he said, well, you know, Howard, this isn't really about you. It's about the country. <laughs> There's not another person in America that could have told me that. Yeah. Not one, because he'd had the president take, stolen from him by the Supreme Court on a five to four decision. And I thought, God, if this guy's telling me that, this is the guy I have to listen to. So basically I lost and I went home and I cleaned up my garage and mowed my lawn and all the things I hadn't done for a year. And then I get back on the trail for Kerry. So you've started to answer that, but let me probe a little deeper. I mean, what's it like the morning after when everything you've been doing and pouring your heart into for a year, for some people for their entire lifetime? It didn't some... hurt me at all, but it hurt. the only thing that really hurt me is how hard everybody else had worked for me. And I, you feel like you've let them down because they, I mean, people were... I mean, one lady who was on a disability gave me a bag of $50 worth of quarters that she'd saved her for over five years for something special. And you don't win, and you kind of feel Christmas. You know, I just let all these people down. But that was, you know, I basically pulled myself together and did all the things I'd, I went back to my old life. <laughs> I was unemployed for the first time in a short period of time. In some ways, the scream speech helped because people were really anxious to have me advertise products for them. <laughs> Especially Yahoo, you know, they had this thing about Yahoo yeah. or something like that. They gave me a whole lot of money for doing a TV ad. So that made ends meet for a while. Then it didn't take me long before I figured out I wanted to be chairman of the DNC, right. which is a whole other fun because I get to run against the establishment and Again. win. And win. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then you you become the man. So right. there you go. I'm struck by the, uh, the $50 in quarters. So you did give this woman on disability something. I know. This, this campaign did show that politics are not decided exclusively in the back rooms, although the back rooms still exist. But your campaign demonstrated that particularly young people or people who, who are not in the middle of things can get together. The internet helps oh, yeah. bring them together. There's a lot of new tools, but they can have an impact. So it was $50 well spent. It's very interesting. First of all, if you look at Indivisible, which is a pretty big mover and shaker these days, 
I don't think they consciously did this, but it's actually modeled after something from the campaign called Meetup. We had 800 groups that self-organized all over the country. Well, they have 8,000 groups. But the most interesting thing about Indivisible is their uh, membership is bimodal age-wise. And so is my campaign. It's full of young people who provided all the energy, but there's a whole lot of people my age or a little younger who had dropped out of politics as a result of what was going on in Vietnam and hadn't paid any attention to it, and now they were back. So, And that's still going on today. A lot of the structure, you're right in the opening, you talked about a lot of the structures, it did change politics forever. Again, I don't really, that wasn't my intention. That was a new generation coming to power in the beginning, and they set the rules. And those rules have been in extent. I mean, that's why I think the Republicans are in deep trouble. All they've got is billionaires and people who hate everybody. And the average person who is under 35 in this country, 70% of them vote for Democrats. But the younger people, younger people, I think the younger people did more to deliver 2018 to the Democrats than anybody else. The interesting thing about the young generation is they're actually very liberal on social issues and they're actually more conservative about money than most of the people in my age who are in the Democratic Party. It's going to be really interesting when they fully start taking over committees and stuff like that because I think we're going to see something very, very different than what most of us might have expected. So let's go back to the campaign for a few more minutes. What surprised you most about running? How tough it was and how tough I was. I was did not think I was that tough. But you do get that far and go through all those things and you find, hey, you know, <laughs> I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I could stand up to that. I mean, at one point, one of my closest aides had been with me for 12 years, took me into a room in Iowa and said, there's a story coming out that's saying you're having an affair. I said, what? With who? <laughs> <laughs> and it was just some bullshit thing yeah. that somebody had said and yeah. they were going to print it. And you sort of roll with the punches on that. If you get all upset about stuff like that, it's just that's what happens in politics. You've, you've answered my next question is what you learn as a person? What you learn? I learned it was a great country because you had unbelievable people who did want to do the right thing. And all you need to do is give them an opportunity to act on it. What's the thing that you're most proud of from the Dean 04 campaign? It's all the young people that were pulled into politics who are now poised to run the country. Let me finish with looking forward. What does a Democrat and the Democratic wing of the party need to do to get the nomination and, and take it to the next step? I think for this group, it's true for all voters, but it's particularly true for young people. Be authentic. Be yourself. Don't try to give cookie-cutter poll suggestions because everybody knows what they are and they're not impressed. That's the most important thing. I believe that we will lose the election to Donald Trump if we only talk about Trump. Trump reminds everybody every day that he's a schmuck. We don't need to do that. We can dismiss his nonsense, but we have got to focus on the things that really are driving the country. Income inequality, which is a, really a, a surrogate for fairness. Do we live in a fair country? Most people think not. Educational opportunity, health care, uh, which the Republicans are making easy for us by taking away pre-existing conditions and uh, stuff protection with Trump's lawsuit and all of whom Republican governors have signed on to. So we've got to talk about that. If this becomes a pissing contest between the Democrats and Donald Trump, why not stick with Trump? Um, I don't think it will. I mean, I think we're going to nominate a candidate who's bigger than that. And if we don't, we're in trouble. So most people look at the presidential nomination process and running for president as like, why do we do this? This is so screwed up. I personally think it's the single best way to test someone to prepare them for the office. 
Am I wrong? No, nope, I think you're right. I think it's tough. It's mean. It's horrid. People want to throw up by the end of it. But if you want somebody who's tough enough to be president, you better be tough on them when they're applying for the job. Howard Dean, thanks for joining us for The Contenders. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 